Hello, this is Aaron Saft on the MR Running Pains podcast. With 30 years of running experience and 20 years of coaching, I thought it time to share with you things I've learned and people I've met so that you can try things for yourself and see if they help your running. Thanks for joining me. take this opportunity to reflect on a few things um my um my podcast guest uh is uh he's an idol of mine um you know i i grew up with frank Giannino as a um, a mentor if you will um someone i could i could ask questions to um you're going to hear it from frank all the all the people he knows, the the runners he's met, the things he's done, just an incredible person to to have in my life um, as a runner, as a person, as a human. Um, so I, I hope you enjoy my conversation with Frank. Um, Frank is obviously um, you'll you'll hear right away. He's very open, honest. Um, you know, he's got a great story, um, and he can talk. <laughs> Don't put it on any speed other than than one when you play this back because frank talks quick enough and uh when the two of us get together um we speak pretty quickly so i hope you enjoy the conversation um but before that 
uh, I wrote a piece and I, I put it on Facebook. Um, a number of you have seen it and have really commented, and I sincerely appreciate all of your your comments and support. It was wonderful. Um, it it wasn't my intention to, you know, to really um, to to get you know a ton of comments. Uh, just more to make people think and and you know kind of uh, be responsible for their actions. Uh, but you know to to have that outpouring, I, I, I truly I'm touched and thank you. Um, so I've been thinking a lot recently and I didn't really get a chance to update. So this kind of gives you an update as to where I'm at and what's going on, uh, in my professional life as well as, um, you know, with running and family, uh, and just with the current situations, uh, out in the world that's going on right now. So I'd like to, to just take the moment to read it to you. Um, and then, uh, I'll get into my conversation with Frank. And uh, we'll close with um, my kids wanted to, to come on and we're going to talk um, about things that are going on right now and how they feel about things. So, you know, any piece of this, obviously, you can fast forward if, if it doesn't interest you. I totally understand, but uh, I felt I wanted to, to put it out there because if I can make even one person think differently or you know try to reflect at least, that's that's a that's a great thing. So here I go. This is from my my personal Facebook page. I need to expound for a moment on the road ahead. In 2020, not much has gone to plan or follow the script I had laid out as many of us have found. But here's part update and part what I feel in my heart. Tomorrow, I had planned to chase the FKT fastest known time on our local 30-mile Art Lobe Trail surrounded by friends and family. As my body had other plans, a hip and calf injury... I'll be postponing those plans to a later date to be determined, maybe spur of the moment so I can surprise my body. In a time where running has been a welcome relief to everything around me, I thought I would be more frustrated, but I find myself enjoying the moment with my kids, my wife, my friends, and living vicariously through the athletes I coach. I'm looking long-term and realizing a break right now isn't a bad thing, and coming back with a solid base will only make my plans for the fall that much better. Is the glass half full or half empty? I don't know, and honestly, I don't care. I'm going to drink whatever's in it, refill the glass, drink that, fill it up halfway again, pass it to the next fellow that comes along, and put my foot forward into whatever the future holds. For those that don't know, and for those that have read this far, life has had some big changes for me. I'm no longer an owner or employee of Footer X Running. I felt for the business to survive, it could only have one salaried owner operator. So I signed my portion over to one of the best friends a guy could have in Scott Sosha. After that, I analyzed what was causing stress and what was adding fulfillment and enjoyment to my life. I decided race directing was too much for me and coaching was giving me so much joy. So I've resigned from race directing for now and have become a full-time coach. I have just over 50 adults I coach right now, training for distances of 5K to ultramarathon, and I'm truly happy. It's tough in this time to imagine training for running as race after race is canceled or postponed. I think those that truly love running, like myself, haven't skipped a beat. Those that train for extrinsic, extrinsic, extrinsic reward of the race have really had to refocus on their why and make sure it was okay to train. 
and yet others have found reward in their own pursuit of fast times and PRs at distances they haven't run in years. It's amazing to not only see the physical transformation of these individuals, but to witness their mental growth and comprehension of what drives them to be not only a runner, but what makes them human. In my own reflection of running, I find myself entranced by the primal and instinctive nature of the physical activity. There are no parameters when you go out for a run. You can run fast or slow, short distance or long. It doesn't matter if you take a left or a right or simply turn around and go home. It's simple in a world of complexities. I don't know if anyone else finds this truth evident, but when I do go to a race and I line up, I don't see race, gender, or ethnicity. I don't see humans. Um, I see humans of a kindred spirit. If someone is down or hurt, there's no thought as to should I help. It's how can I help. I've tried to make this transition to my daily life and my daily interactions with everyone. It's not easy to love everyone and to be non-judgmental, but I'm trying. I'll continue to do my small part, and I'll even say this first. I love you. No need to say it back. I just hope it makes you think about your daily interactions and makes you feel something. If only for a moment, and if it gives you pause and a moment to reflect. I'm here for you if you need an ear to listen, a shoulder to cry on, arms to hug, a back to work, and two legs, hopefully soon, to run with. I'll say it one more time, and I mean it. I love you. I needed to let that out. Thank you. Aaron Saff. Hi, everybody. This is Aaron Saft with the MR Running Pains podcast. I have with me today one of my longtime uh, heroes and uh, role models that I looked up to since I started running uh, in 1990. His name is Frank Giannino. We're going to get into uh, a lot of his background today, but uh, most notably, Frank uh, held the transcontinental record uh, for running across the United States in 46 days, uh, and that was uh, 1980. Is that correct, Frank? Yeah, 79 and 80 twice. Right. Yeah. We'll talk about 1979 as well. So he, he made two attempts and we'll talk about each. Um, and you held that record until 2016 when Pete Kostelnik broke that record. Is that correct? That is correct. All right. Nice. Um, so Frank, uh, let us know where, where are you right now? <laughs> where I am right now is I'm 68 years old and I'm feeling every bit of my age. Um, age has uh, been good to me in some ways, not so good to me in others. But uh, I'm not a runner like I was. I walk every morning two and a half miles. Uh, I do a little bit of walking you know, as I move, but it's mainly because my dog has, uh, needs relief in the morning. <laughs> That's my motivation. <laughs> uh, Frank and I are recording remotely. Um, I'm, I'm still in North Carolina, but Frank is in my hometown of Middletown, New York. Uh, that's where I grew up. Um, Frank, how long have you been in Middletown? I've been uh, in Middletown since 1981. I was involved uh, with two others in a store in New Paltz, New York, from 78 to 81. Very nice. Very nice. Those of you that are, are climbers will be familiar with uh, New Paltz, New York. That's uh, one of the, the great places to go to climb in uh, uh, just south of the, uh, the Catskill Mountain Range in the Shuang Mountains. Um, and that's, uh, that's right near where I grew up. 
um, yeah, I was born uh, in Pine Bush, New York, and uh, we moved to Middletown in my elementary years. Um, but um, let's let's see here. So, um, when did you start running, Frank? My uh, freshman year of high school, I had uh, started dirt spring track uh, at Tappan Zee. Uh, my um, father was working two full time job job full time jobs. He's a, a, a vet of World War II. Got out of the service as a male nurse. Uh, totally committed to working 40, 80 hours and five days a week. So we'd work a daytime shift at a prison as a male nurse and evening at a uh, hospital in Nyack. Um, and again, eight hour shifts back to back. Finally caught up with him and he had an accident. And by the summer after my freshman year, we moved out of Tappan Zee and came up to Orange County to where I ran for Valley Central in my last three years of high school. But high school, I want to share, was a, a, a um, a life-changing experience. Uh, first, I go from my bad influence friends when I was in Catholic school and we motivated, matriculated into uh, freshman year of high school. There were nickel bags coming from the city, gangs, all kinds of influences. And uh, I was, uh, you know, not leading, I was following. And then my mother coerced, coerced me to go out for track. She said, Frankie, you always got energy. You guys run the three-eighths of a mile around the block here in a Buttonwood place. And, and you never had a right go out for track. So I go out for track. And uh, I'm amazed. There's all these upperclassmen. Guys are running with sand-filled inner tubes and, and muscling it out and really good. And I'm just so inspired by such a different crowd first day. And the, the coach goes, he says, all you new guys were running a five-lap time trial. I had never run a step in a, in a race. So we had to race five laps on the track. I threw my guts up, world spinning around. Three weeks later, I finished second to the county champ in the two-mile. And the coach came up to me after that race, put his arm around me, and that was it. That was all it took, and I was hooked. I knew I'd be doing this for the rest of my life because it was the one thing that made sense in my life. The only thing that made sense was running and everything that went with it. Frank froze here for a second. I think we're frozen. Yep. <laughs> yeah, yep. we got you back. We got you okay. back. So, uh, we uh, we you stopped at where I said it was the one thing in my life that, and then it froze. <laughs> made, that made sense and still makes sense, sense to this very day. Yep. Right on. Uh, so you, you did uh, obviously track cross country. Did they have indoor track at that time? Uh, yes, we went when I went to Valley Central the following fall because of our move up to Orange County from Rockland County. Um, we had uh, outdoor track, we had cross country, indoor track, and outdoor track. Nice. Our indoor track was on the parking lot. Our coach was Bob Decker. Bob, uh, you know, took, took the guidelines. He made some nice ovals, and uh, there we go. Fantastic, fantastic. Uh, and then uh, post high school, what, where did that find you? Well, post high school, I went to Orange Community College to get two years of uh, relatively inexpensive uh, part of my education. I felt uh, liberal arts was liberal arts. I would uh, couldn't see going to a four-year school. I really wasn't ready to leave home anyway. So I did two years at OCK. The summer of my uh, between my two years, I got a draft notice in 1971. Uncle Sam wanted me. So I uh, uh, delayed enlistment till the following June of 72, finished my OCK degree, because of my two years of college, they made me a platoon leader in basic training in the Army. So I did uh, my basic at Dick's my fall um, at um, Fort Huachuca in the border in Arizona, right down on the Mexican border. You speak fluent Spanish, 
So I, I learned a few words there. Um, as far as the uh, uh, my permanent duty, I was supposed to uh, go to Vietnam, got orders. They got canceled because Nixon won re-election in a landslide, promising we were coming out of Vietnam. So the uh, results of that was we went on holdover status. I came back to New York, did some running back here, and uh, got orders to report to um, APO Seattle Anchorage duty station. So I wound up in Alaska, Anchorage, Alaska. So my next two years and eight months up there were also transformational. I found the marathon lifestyle, trail running at its best, and uh, made a lot of friends to this day that I communicate with. I just got off the phone this morning with one of them, uh, Bob Trout up there, who actually ran with Pete Kostelnik on his uh, his key to key run. He ran oh, yeah. 20 miles. Really. Yeah. So cool. all the, all the life experiences keep coming full circle, you know, all the time, never stops. Right. <laughs> and and uh, so your time up at, in Anchorage, um, are there any races that were up there that, that are still going on these to this day that you yeah. can think of? The mayor's midnight sun marathon. I ran the first right. one in oh, 75 cool. in the spring and then uh, a bunch of local trail races got to know all the community, the two running clubs, the pulsators and uh, just ran these just amazing races up the Arctic Valley ski bowl. Um, I remember one, running one race and it was a 30 degree drop in temperature. I had a new uh, Bill Rogers running short and a little uh, snap um, on my strap, my, my, my holder there popped out, my stuff went flying and, and it was free and it was freezing. I won the race, but I had no, I had no, I couldn't feel my junk anymore. So. <laughs> right that, that was a memorable moment. Boy, 30 degree drop during a five, during a, during a 10 K trail race. That was oh my amazing. God. Oh, that's incredible. And that's um, the weather up here. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. No, it's, that's no doubt. The, um, so that would bring you uh, to, did you say, uh, 1971, did you say? When, when, was, when was Anchorage? Anchorage was uh, 72 to 75. So I 72. separated here with June of 75. Okay. And then you moved back east after that, or where'd you go from there? Yeah, I, I, I had uh, I got quite a bit of money up in Alaska. Uh, there was a, uh, a gold rush called the Black Gold Rush going on. The pipeline was being built, the Alaska Pipeline. So I had a part-time job working at Shakey's Pizza. Uh, so my military job only really took 40 hours a week of my time. I was in a joint service operation with the Army, Air Force, and Navy. That was interesting. And uh, how they all got along in the office. I was the low man on the pole. and uh, But I got a part-time job. Um, and weekends, I would just go run races all over the state. And uh, in the wintertime, I had Nordic, Nordic ski race, skate ski race. Uh, Nordic ski club up there has got 5,000 members, very active club. And they run on those same ski trails all through the summer. So it's, it's like a huge community and got to know a lot of people. The, um, well, as far as uh, um, that summer, though, I had quite a bit of money in the bank. Um, an ex-girlfriend said she wanted to travel the country with me. So I said, sure, why not? That was a mistake, by the way. And then I, I wind up uh, traveling for 11 weeks around the whole U.S. And I really got to know the lay of the land by traveling down the Alcan, the Inland Passage on uh, ferry for a little bit, and um, and then traveling all around the West. We, we went right into through Coeur d'Alene, Idaho, and worked our way down and around up the West Coast. Saw a lot, you know, went across uh, paralleling I-90 kind of on the way back. But, but you know, the, the whole thing with running was a series of, and why cross-country running was a series of life 
moments. It didn't happen overnight. It was, it happened because it made sense at the time to pursue certain things. So in uh, 1975 to 76, I am continuing my marathon lifestyle. Uh, that fall, I run the uh, Skyline Marathon in Buffalo flat race. I bomb out in the last yeah, 10K. And I still had uh, my distance. I was fresh. So I ran my lifetime best marathon that early December in uh, the Maryland Marathon. I ran, broke 240, which for me was good. And then uh, uh, through the spring, ran Boston. I uh, had to drop out because of a massive uh, fascia problem, uh, which was interesting because I dealt with some gurus back then who tried to help me, but to no avail. And then uh, that summer, I wound up uh, with one of my uh, Alaska buddies. Uh, he brought, drove his van back east. He did a little trip himself. And we took our two vans and he helped me transport my gear to Flagstaff. So I finished my undergraduate in Flagstaff, trained at 7,500 feet. First thing I did was run up to the summit of Humphreys Peak, <laughs> 15 miles away. Um, and uh, just became an, a very good part of the uh, the amazing NAU cross-country program, which even back then was amazing. Uh, by the time I left, they were working on this project called the uh, a wooden dome. Um, and uh, we used to call it the condome, but it was this big wooden dome with indoor facilities for football, for indoor track. Still one of the most amazing facilities around. But uh, that my, my time training there at Elevation was a big learning experience. I also respected Elevation my first day there. A uh, day after that was I after did the, the the mountain run. I did 20 laps with a 110 between, and uh, afterward I had elevation sickness. I never knew what that would felt like, but I fell to the inside of the track once again, overwhelmed. It took me quite a while to bounce back. Had a massive headache and lightweight. Had to just lay down. So uh, that would that was a memory, and uh, so all these experiences are piling up, Aaron. So I go back, then I go to Eugene, Oregon. Because I got to be where all the runners are. And another good runner I, I was friends with and hung out with was just a high school kid back then. Only a junior. He had run 855 in the deuce in a gymnasium uh, in uh, in Anchorage. And Bill Dellinger flew up and recruited him to run for the U of O. And um, uh, his name is Don Clary. Don qualified in 84 or 80 for our Olympic team. But they didn't go that year. So he was one of the many that got screwed out of that um, in the 5,000. So, uh, so Don is at U of O, Alberto Salazar, Rudy Chapa, Bill McChesney, uh, Nat Central, which is the fifth man, another good runner. We all know about his son. And uh, so anyway, uh, Matt's still the same, you know, butt grabbing, can't trust the guy. You know, don't leave your wife with him because forget about it. You'll never be the same. So she'll never be the same. So the, uh, that, that, the, all these learning experiences about people, their, their intimacies of the personality. But who am I hearing about the whole time uh, in 1972, fall, Fort Huachuca? I'm watching TV and this guy named Frank Shorter wins the Olympic marathon. Another guy who was my hero, Steve Prefontaine, finishes fourth in the 5,000. I mean, I was crying when he finished fifth. as were thousands of others. So we're, we're living through all these, what we didn't know at the time were massive historical moments that have had a huge impact on everyone ever since. So um, the uh, I leave Oregon because the GI Bill has run out <laughs> and I had no money. So I was slinging pizzas again and I decided, you know, I'm really done with college. So I come back east for a, uh, uh, um, what do you call it, an, uh, a per diem job working for corrections in a new jail called Middle Orange Correction Facility. So I'm what repping a basketball game. This is 1970. Um, 
I, I was 77, 78 in, in Oregon. And it's in the spring I came back. I, they, Oregon has uh, trimesters. They last 10 weeks. There's four of them a year. So you got the fall, the winter, the spring, and the, and the summer semester, trimester or whatever. And um, so I leave and I come back east and uh, take the job in the jail. I'm roughing a basketball game with another guy. And one inmate shares another with a homemade. And I said, that's the end. I'm done. So I'm running a lot. I start driving uh, mentally challenged adults who are now going into group home settings from the institutions. And I was driving a house of eight women and a house of eight men to see movies. So part-time, they gave me money to live, but I was running full-time. I was doing 18 to 20 milers in the morning and six to eight in the afternoon, almost daily. The, the long runs happened every day. I lived on Sparkling Ridge Road right below, below the Undercliff Trail in the Gunks. So we would do all our various looping, and I was just tr truly attached to the Gunks at that time in my life. Couldn't wait to see them when I got back on both my cross-country runs. Couldn't wait to see that ridge. And you grew up with that ridge, so I mean, it's your yep. backyard. So the um, uh, long story short was the um, uh, I'm running with Billy Glatz, and uh, we in early December, we in spring when I was at the Boston Marathon, spring of '78, I'd come across a book called My Run Across and the Bill Rogers Running Center on Cleveland Circle, and uh, the idea to do a journey made sense to me. I I, I just was feeling it, not understanding it. And then uh, the time starts to pass and Billy Glatz and I are running together every day. And I said, Bill, I said, uh, let's do this. So we were doing that famous run from Washington parking lot to the old stone church across the ridge. And that's where we made our decision the first week of December. So December, January, we're going to Maybrook Flea Market. We're selling records, vintage albums, stereo, trying to come up with money, realizing we didn't have enough to finance a trip. We didn't even know what our trip was going to look like. We were talking about wearing our Eagle Scout, Boy Scout backpacks because we're both Eagle Scouts. And um, so next thing you know, we're trying, we got to raise money. We've got to find sponsorship. So it turns out we get a lucky break. The United Way of Ulster County says, you know, there's a new guy uh, who's publisher of the Daily Frame, and he's our campaign chair, and he's really interested in supporting your run. So we had that landmark meeting with the staff, and he said, give them what they want. So Billy was reluctant because he didn't like being beholden to so many masters, and I'm the talkative one who's always five feet off the ground, who sold everybody on the idea. I didn't even know if I could do the damn thing. So I had never run an ultra marathon, haven't ever run a marathon ultra, and I don't care to ever run an ultra. That's why I respect guys like you and what you achieve going through one uh, threshold after another in route to uh, completing your task, let alone really succeeding at what you do, which is even more amazing. Um, so the long story short there is uh, we get sponsorship. We are above the banner with a map of the United States, pair run across America for United Way. All of a sudden, we go from getting no agate ink at all about race results, none in the Daily Freeman, and these two idiot runners are on the front page <laughs> of the Daily Freeman. And all of a sudden, we have big celebrities around New Paltz, and all of us <laughs> I'm being asked to speak to groups, and so all of a sudden, March first comes. We got the publisher got Campers Barn to donate a motorhome in a, a trade for advertising. And they were going to turn the new, the brand new motorhome from Coachman into a rental after it was all over with. And the, um, uh, so we had a brand new motorhome. And two of my high school track mates at Valley Central, younger sister, Becky Wright, um, 
uh, was fresh out of college, 22 years old, uh, recently divorced from a marriage she should have never gotten into at a young age. And uh, she says, I'm available. I haven't got my first job yet. I'll drive your car for you. So we had a handler who was very responsible. She kept detailed notes. Uh, she fed us. Billy, we get out to the West Coast. Aaron, I don't know what I'm doing. All I know is I'm looking 3,000 miles. I wasn't thinking about daily increments or how to do it. All I know is we just put a random number out there, 50 miles a day, as an itinerary for a 3,000-mile route. We had triptychs, a road map. You know, we had, we had the plan planned. Um, so we're, what was the record uh, at the time? What was uh, the, the record? Well, the other thing was I did look at the Guinness Book record back in, even after before the first run, and it was a guy by the name of, uh, I can't remember his name now. But uh, he had run 57 days. Yeah. He had run it in 57 days. Okay. And um, I think he actually did a, uh, came out with his own book recently too. And one of his mutual friends was just in the store. But uh, so that was in the book before mine. So he, uh, I, 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 I start on my journey and um, the record we're claiming is from LA to New York, not San Francisco to New York. So the guy who had the Guinness record had done it from San Francisco to New York. So, so that was uh, Don Shepard? Does that sound right? No. Shepard was not him. He in 64, he ran solo from uh, L.A. to New York, but he wasn't. that wasn't who had a record down from L.A. Okay. to New York. I don't know who had it. I'm just, I'd have to dig back. Yeah, my okay. book might have, might have those things in it. But anyway, the first one, we're at, we're at Gladstone's restaurant. It's pelted rain. Tin can of a motorhome. It's a lot of noise. We didn't get any sleep. And um, I have my uh, Alaska buddy who drove out west with me to Flagstaff the years earlier. He lives in Anaheim now. So he was helping us that first day. So he and Becky uh, were to drive ahead eight miles up Sunset Boulevard and meet us at the Sepulveda, go over the mountain into uh, Fountain Valley. And um, um, what do you call it? You know, rendezvous at eight miles and take it from there, so to speak. So it's pouring rain. Sunset Boulevard is this beautiful Malibu, the whole area. The rain's just like in sheets coming over our shoes. We're soaking wet. And we hit a, we hit that area, and it's amazing. It's a major interstate, 405. Supposedly it looks like an entry ramp. Uh, we can't see the motorhome anywhere. There's a, a high-rise Holiday Inn, so they're subdued near there, but we never saw the motorhome. It was run across America and blazoned all over it. So Billy and I run past the eight-mile point because we don't see the Sepulveda sign because it's covered with leaves from the rain. And, um, excuse me, and the, um, I just need a little water, just a little drop. Yeah, what are you I'm running in? in what uh, what shoes are you running in? What shoes did you have to run in at that time? Asics. So Asics. Was, uh, the Tiger Jayhawk. So the, uh, so we, um, uh, ran four miles past our destination, our eight-mile point. So we'd run 12 miles. We see the sign for UCLA, and we know from the map we're way off mark. So we thumb it back to the Sepulveda. This guy picks us up in a VW, two-windowed you know, thing with no air conditioning. We immediately, with all our sweat and wet, fog his car up. And he, we get to the Sepulveda to see the sign, but he kicks us out, throws us out of his car. So we start going up the road. Still don't see them anywhere nearby. We get over. We get to a diner. 
uh, couldn't manage to get somebody to give us money because we had no money to make a phone call and tell the police to put out an EPB for a run across American motorhome that these two runners are running across America on their first day. And uh, we are lost. 50 miles later, no support. Oh, the two APBs merge because we stop at a police station. I think it's Vallejo is the town. And um, they show up. We're waiting. We're a little chilly. And um, the uh, yelling starts. I thought it was over. Um, so because, the you know, Becky had spilled the beans that we had lost them. They, they lost us. And uh, everybody knew back east. So first day basically was jinxed. But we worked it all out. We diffused our own situation and everybody uh, you know, got a hotel that night and we just, just worked it off um, emotionally. So the following morning, we get on, on road. This time we're going across the Mojave Desert for the day. So Billy wears black T-shirt, black shorts, fair white skin, whiter than yours, long blonde hair. <laughs> That's not possible. You, well, you're, yeah, he is. <laughs> so anyway, he gets second degree skin burn, you know, blisters, winds up convulsing that night, having convulsions. Following morning, says I'm dropping out. The guy had more talent than I ever had in, in one shoe, but he just did not like all the masters and all these people who were responsible to, sponsors and so on. So uh, he drops out, but he stays with me for nine days to make sure that I get into the routine of doing 50 miles a day. We get to Phoenix. He sticks out his thumb on the interstate uh, 15. The truck driver picks him up, drives him back all the way back to New Paltz from Phoenix. Oh <laughs> He's running on local trails up there. And runners see him. They're going, what? Because they didn't know he had dropped out. Because we didn't tell anybody for a very long time that he had, he had left the run. Um, so we broke that news when I felt we should break it, and, and that was it. But I did figure out how to do the mileage every day. It's a great story. I mean, every day was just one more adventure, uh, meeting people, getting a lot of signatures, witness signatures, uh, the food we ate. Um, Becky was uh, at times running with me, would run back to the car and occasionally there. You know, a lot of women get harassed when they run. I think the runner's world said it was like 86%. Uh, so she was she definitely had her share of moments being harassed by by jerks because uh, God forbid if you look halfway decent, you know, then it turns into a whole thing sometimes. So the uh, uh, second run, the reporter says to me at the finish, are you going to do this again? I go, that's What's an interesting that? question. Run across America. And I said, yes. So the second run happened because of a reporter's question. And deep in, in my my heart, I had been thinking about it. I hadn't given it my all. Because like the fifty-mile routine was being done twelve hours or less every day, and uh, where did you, where'd you get to in seventy-nine? How far did you get? I got to New York City Hall in seventy-nine. In seventy-nine, so we ran okay. from LA to New York City. You got there. You just didn't get the record, right? No, uh, we we claimed. Uh, that it was an LA to New York record, but I didn't really know if it was. And that was a knee jerk answer to somebody's question. There have been times in my life when people ask me things and then I might utter something out that turns out to be off. So, uh, but anyway, the second run was all about everything, Aaron, putting all the marbles on the table. Uh, I knew I was going to go after a Guinness record of 57 miles a day. I planned on running 60 miles a day from the 50 I had done. Then this guy comes along in the summer of 80, seemed like the explosion year for runs across America. And um, this uh, runner 
by the name Stan Cottrell runs from New York to San Francisco, holding an American flag, running across San Francisco, Golden Gate Bridge, City Hall. Uh, he has his stories, and there's he's got his critics, and there's all kinds of stuff. Because you got to remember, we didn't have GPS, and all we had was triptychs, a roadmap, and all the signatures we could possibly garner. That was that was all we had to go on. And, and your witnesses were your team and uh, people who saw you along the way and ran with you. So we documented everything both times. Pete, on his runs, we had talked, and he was very, very dedicated to making sure. A couple of GPSs, he had a satellite. So he did everything right, right by the book, better than anybody ever before him. So the um, long story short is uh, I get to San Francisco once again going, what the hell did I get myself into, you know? First day of the run, I'm thinking I could never be jinxed again like the first day going out of L.A. and losing my support crew because we weren't that organized as a team yet. So we get to the Golden Gate Bridge. I got four podiatric squad runners from the California College of Podiatric Medicine, their mentor, uh, one of them, Dick Bogdan, a runner. And uh, we're running across the Golden Gate Bridge from City Hall. A, uh, there's a commotion up ahead on the sidewalk. So we are told we can't pass commotion. So the five of us, six of us, leap across all, all lanes of traffic on the Golden Gate Bridge to the other side. Don't lose a beat. We're running by. The commotion's still going on. I'm two miles up on a bike path paralleling the interstate, heading north around San Francisco Bay, and a biker catches up with me. He goes, oh, you're the guy I saw on TV this morning. He goes, he goes, um, he says, he says, good luck on your run. He says, you're nuts. And uh, I just sort of joked, laughed. I laughed it off. And he goes, did you hear what happened to the jumper? I go, what jumper? He goes, yeah, this guy waited for his wife to show up. He looked up at her and he jumped off the bridge. Oh it was gosh, a Chinese a restaurant idea. owner who killed himself, but he waited for his wife to lay that on her. So that I said, you can't jinx me twice. No way. So both of my runs started out with a big jinx. And uh, then, I, you know, I, again, it took us the first four days as a, a, a larger support crew, my father, my stepmother, my brother, John, and a publicist by the name of Bruce Goldberg. It took us four days to uh, become cohesive. And I've told this to any crosser who's ever wanted to go do a run, whether they were trying to run better than I had done or whether they were running subsequently since, because I have talked to runners since. And I said my, my claim was soft on the first four days because we only managed 50 to 57 miles at most each of those first four days. And I was shooting for 70 mile a day because I had to beat Stan Cottrell's 64 miles a day. So even with his run, on my second run, I was chasing his record and originally only planning to do 60 miles a day. So it was it was a quite a hardship. Uh, and it took me all the way till Fort Collins, Colorado, to be on that pace to know when I was coming downhill that, that day, that 21st day, that I was going to uh, be able to achieve my goal. But I just had to stay, stay dedicated to the task every day. I started getting up earlier, 3 o'clock in the morning, 4 a.m. Uh, departures. I think the thing I cherished the most in my entire life, Aaron, was watching the sun come up. That first crack of sunlight at the edge of the horizon, I got to tell you. And you know this from being just running ultras even. Uh, when that sun finally comes up, that's a huge relief. So those first two hours, you're just sort of motoring along, uh, half sleeping even. And uh, finally, the sun starts to crack a little smile, and, and there it is. And a lot of Absolutely. stories, of course. Lots of stories. Oh, yeah, That's beautiful. Um, 
So uh, you could touch on your your book here. Um, mine's sure. well used, um, <laughs> well read. Uh, the uh, so um, it, you know this this touches on a lot of what you just went through, but just touch on the book for a second and and sure. kind of what that, what that was getting into. The book was the result of Kevin Gleason knowing me for a long time, a sports writer from the record, um, introduced to the record by Bill uh, Burr many years ago who's always been a very big running advocate as well and sort of took Kevin under his uh, wing. And Kevin went from being a horse racing advocate to becoming a runner advocate as time went by. And uh, he just said at one point, he says, I got to tell your story. So we began this like four year journey to document it over many, many breakfasts at quick check down the street here over coffee uh, with him just using, he calls it Kevin Gleason shorthand documenting everything. And he finally just wove all the stories together. So we uh, took a trip to Boston, met with Dave McGilvery, another crosser who directs the Boston Marathon, who's been a lifelong friend. Uh, he, Stan and I, the summer I got the sponsorship for the second run, uh, was in early August, right before my second run started at September 1st. And uh, Stan Cottrell, who was representing a new concept by Keds uh, back then, because they wanted to get into running, but never quite made it. Um, so I saw a big map of running across America, and that's how I got to know Stan had run 64 days. And uh, naturally, I gravitated to Stan. I started talking to him, and I was there to get um, my Intermark shoe company through one of my, the father of my high school teammates, Bud Wiener, uh, to go ahead and um, uh, get sponsorship. So that's why I was down at the Coliseum at Columbus Circle. So uh, Stan and I and Dave McGilvery was there representing an old line called Prospects just before he got hired by Saucony to be their marketing director nationally and start their run, uh, share the road with a runner campaign. And he did obviously became the, one of the most well-known race directors on the planet and has made a, done a good job with his company. So I was there for all of it. You know, the foundation of Dave's uh, is a triathlon organization, his, uh, his, his, uh, all his running exploits. Uh, he's done more than one journey run himself. Just so many great stories. And, uh, but it all goes back to Columbus Circle and that one breakfast meeting with Stan Cottrell, who I was going after, uh, and Dave McGilvery, who had already done him, you know, uh, had run from uh, Key West all the way up to Boston, always finishing at Fenway because everything he benefited was the uh, Red Sox charity and the Jimmy Fund. And then uh, his run across America benefited the Jimmy Fund. He's really big on that. He's got virtual races going on right now across America. So, um, there seems to be a lot of interest in running across America. So for some reason, I, I, I think it's just wonderful. Years ago in 1980, I actually wrote a letter uh, to the uh, USA uh, TAC, or the Athletics Congress before it became USATF, uh, about wanting to organize a race across the country, but go as you please style, with maybe a dozen or two people with their own motorhome support systems. And I was trying to get people to engage that. But the whole reason it never came together was was dollars. And how could you, how could you, without GPS and satellite technology, you know, satellites, how could you validate what everybody's doing? The claim was that back then the people would cheat and we couldn't pull it off. So, and there were many other attempts for people to organize races across the country. Uh, some that which that succeeded, uh, that did take place ever since, but now it's there. And, uh, actually, uh, Dave and Dave has a whole program the stage across America race that I'm, I've been helping him with on the side uh, with college teams, all kinds of groups, uh, but relays and then individuals who are going to do, uh, do the, do the, uh, 
uh, the leg daily. So that it, they, we could set it up so it would be a race where you could uh, be ahead of uh, uh, Pete's Guinness record. You know, relayers could easily do that 72, three miles, but it'd be tough for people to stay on tracks and they probably would be dropped short if they didn't meet like a deadline or something. So all, a lot of talk. We don't know where it's going to look like and it may never come to fruition, but uh, he and Dave and I have been talking for many years about this stuff. So. That's cool. Yeah. Uh, going back to, you know, when you, when you actually set the record in, in 1980, um, talk about some of the lows, like what were some of the absolute lows, the you know, lows of that, uh, of that, that cross America trip? Well, let, First of all, I, I'm pretty even keeled ever since my runs across America. My life has been pr- fairly consistent. Uh, I was anything but prior to that. Uh, relationships, I mean, you name it. There were, I had a, one relationship break up, and I got to tell you, that actually was what fueled my running cross the first time. Uh, when I was in Flagstaff, I was engaged to a girl, and uh, she blindsided me for somebody else, and I was heartbroken. And I, I got to say, the fuel for my first run was not unknowingly the mo- the heartbreak of that that experience because when I think back of what I thought about every day, it was that relationship. I looked like a psych patient on the side of the road running gotcha. across the first time. <laughs> and the second time, what do you think fueled you? Fueled me there was just uh, a record. I want I wanted right. badly wanted to make to achieve a record claim because I knew I could do it. Having done the routine first the first time. I knew with some tweaking uh, that I was gonna I was gonna do it, and it, also you know I had the best running year of my life between the two runs. Uh, that 50 miles a day, Aaron, I was rocking it, man. I went out and ran a 111.05 half marathon. I mean, did things that were way above my class. <laughs> well, yeah, I, mean, I didn't belong yeah, in that category, you know. I mean, you, yeah, you go into the back of the book, and you you, you know you had laid out uh, every day what you were doing, right. and you know you start to get into um, like midway through and that's where you started knocking out the 70 mile plus days. Exactly. Uh, I mean, that's like, it's phenomenal. What, what was your, your by longest Moines, day? Was- by Des Moines, Iowa, I was, I was there. That was my, were- that was my, the day when I knew I could bang out the routine with no problem. You had uh, 82 miles on October 13th. Was that your longest day? Yes. Uh, what I had to do was reach a certain goal a certain daily goal to be able to finish under Stan's record. What was the, what was the toughest state? Pennsylvania. What was the, what was the, Pennsylvania because of the hills. Every runner says that Stan, when he was running from East to West, Dave McGilvery, when he was running from West to East, every crosser I've talked to said Pennsylvania was the toughest state. If New York was the finish. Gotcha. Gotcha. Because yeah, of how late it was. And then, just because it was constantly undulating, I imagine the, the roads. Yeah. Oh, uh, really? Uh, no, it's the drivers. Uh, the drivers. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I got knocked off the road a couple times. <laughs> oh, geez. You never got injured by a car, though, did you? No. No. no never got injured. That's good. That's good. Um, and talk about um, you know your. I know in the second one you kind of talked about your footwear and having issues with your footwear just because of of what you were wearing compared to what your foot needed. The shoe I had on was a, uh, a $24 retail shoe. Uh, the AAU shoe brand was part of Intermark, Intermark Shoe Company, who was owned by International Seaway Trading Corporation. Uh, they're in Cleveland. Uh, so they're a big importer. And um, their brand, um, 
was sold in case packs to, to, to department stores. Uh, they licensed the AAU brand with the Amateur Athletic Union, which at this point was becoming defunct. All they had left was boxing because uh, the um, in 1978, um, Alaska Senator Ted Stevens worked with many of the athletes, Frank Shorter among them, to to pass get Congress to pass the Amateur Sports Act. That founded all the governing bodies for individual Olympic sports, and we came in line with the IAAF and the USOC, so everybody was on a level playing field. The next step was to get a professional um, or to get businesses to get behind it. So by the LA Olympics in um, uh, it was it was uh, there was big. They made a lot of money, uh, profit on that event. That was the first time corporate America got involved, and that that set forth the business model of all Olympics going forward. Plus, we tore down the barriers between professional sports uh, participants in the United States and those who were in the amateur category, and made it eligible to everybody. So, the the original dream team with uh, Michael Jordan and the crew just smoked everybody in basketball. Uh, in 84, I believe it was. Uh, then in subsequent years, many of the foreign athletes who come here to play with our NBA, um, internationally no less, um, they uh, went ahead and uh, um, would go back home and play for their native country. So if you had a Frenchman or you had a Chinese or had whoever. Uh, so as time went by, uh, because the NBA is so international, um, the even basketball now, you could have the dream team from our whole country of USA-born athletes, but it doesn't mean they're going to run away with every every game. Uh, the U.S. has lost, and we're always in the hunt, it seems like, but it's a pretty level playing field. On, and that's what the Olympics is striving for, is to have it as be as level as it can uh, around the world. Right on. So uh, you've, you've obviously, you've you've helped so many people with their journey runs, whether it be transcon or long distance. Um, I mean, you know, uh, Marshall Ulrich, correct, has reached out to you. Yeah. Um, and um, well, obviously, Pete Koselnick reached out to you. You even, you finished with Pete. Is that correct? You were there in New York City with him? I went to not finish with him. I met him there because I'm not doing the, you know, run, running much. Uh, I'm old. Well, let's put it this way. <laughs> I've, let, I've let my age be an excuse. So... <laughs> Talk about what kind of advice did you provide? What kind of things did you tell them that like we could impart to, to the listeners about, you know, here's some things to think about if you're trying to plan. Um, you know, it can even be like a long race, um, but things that like people don't think of or consider when they're making preparations for these type of things. I think you got to be prepared for anything. you got to have, uh, uh, you have to have kind of figured out your lower extremity. you got to know your body. Uh, the fit of the shoe is everything when you're going to run all day. Um, so uh, I don't care how well you plan, you're still going to wind up with some blisters probably and some uh, kind of sheer force or even refer to negative referred effect. So you have to sort of plan for everything, listen to your body and take it one day at a time. Uh, there is no foolproof plan for anybody uh, to get out there and, and beat a record uh, except for you to know yourself and then stay on pace. The big thing was routine. I, I wanted to be comfortable with my day and know that in the morning I was going to get up and repeat the whole process. So the toughest part of my day is actually worth mentioning because it was always waking up and getting alive. Uh, it took me a good hour in the morning um, of having what we call a pre-breakfast with some wheat germ and some uh, some some kind of a you know uh, you know uh, um, you know that kind of oatmeal. So uh, uh, 
you know, and I, I ate a very healthy, balanced meal on my second run. We had, in fact, my my stepmother Gray's an Italian chef. I mean, oh my God, I had meals to beat the band. She could write a book on cooking in a motorhome while driving. I'm telling you, it was amazing what she did. There were times when a motorhome wasn't quite ready for this, and uh, the refrigerator door would bust open, stuff would spill on the floor. You know, you'd be holding a pot of spaghetti while you're yeah. all hitting a bumpy section of road, or she'd have the car would jerk suddenly, you know, despite your best efforts to drive. And, you know, I, I had an easy job. I was just running all day. These people had to get along with each other, and they had to, uh, they had jobs to do. Everybody had a big job to do. I got a, a massage every night for my dad who took a little course of massage as a male nurse when he was younger and he would milk the lactic acid out of my extremities to my heart. Uh, and, um, I would just go right into deep sleep. I got probably four hours of solid sleep a night. Um, it was four to six hours. I wasn't like Pete who could run a nine thirty pace all day long. I was running much slower than that. Uh, but I just wanted to get the miles and it was all about getting the miles in and doing anything that it took. And if that meant finishing later than usual, I got those miles in. So, did you carry anything with you so far as fuel no. or hydration? No. Nope. I had uh, my brother with a bicycle with panniers, and um, I made one mistake once. I ate four plums in a short period of time in uh, Nevada, <laughs> and all of a sudden it, it came out like cow patties. Right as cars were driving by, I just, I just like the guy, like like the guy in uh, what was that? What was that movie? I can't even remember. <laughs> and ban something or other, and he craps in a bucket. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's what I felt. It was bad, but it happened. Quick and it was all over. So I, you know, I got so many stories that are bowel bowel related that they're sick. <laughs> I'm glad I don't have that many. <laughs> oh, good. Thank God. You're one of the normal guys. Oh, that's great. Um, all right, so uh, that that you. You got the record in 1980. Uh, you had a big year in 1980. You had um, some some other, um, you know, financial, um, you know, changes in your life. You want to touch on what happened else in 1980? Yes. First, I got a sponsorship from AAU Shoes. It took me out to uh, the uh, Fountain Blue in Miami. And um, from there, I went for a month to live in Key West. Uh, and then after that, I wound up in uh, – at a trade show with AAU Shoes sponsorship once again. Um, and then uh, the following uh, summer before my second run, I'd gotten a call by the Times-Herald Record from John Sheff. And John had said, uh, we uh, saw what you did with your run and your upcoming run plans. We'd like to talk to you about having a marathon in Middletown to celebrate the record's uh, 25th anniversary, the Times, the Herald, and the record being 25 years old. So uh, four of us... Uh, to me and Billy and Bobby Bright, uh, one of my best friends from our New Paltz running store, and um, uh, the four administrators from the record, uh, Dan Witt, Ed Golomboski, and, uh, you know, Kevin Witt is his son, and um, then uh, and uh, Bill Kennedy, who was the publisher, or was the uh, editor, uh, and uh, the general manager was John Sheff. Anyway, the four of us met at Wardsbridge Inn, and uh, they were talking about a marathon, and I'm supporting the idea of a marathon. I said, it's you know, it is, it's, it's time. We, we do something out in more rural areas because the cities are really doing a good job staging major events. And um, we're all of a sudden talking, and then, then all of a sudden Bobby blows a whistle. Wait a minute, wait a minute. You guys got this all wrong. He said, don't put a marathon on in Middletown, New York. 
put on a 10K and invite Frank Shorter back to his hometown. Now, Bobby grew up with Frank. He's right around the corner from him behind the hospital and uh, had stayed in touch with him. So he also was best friends with uh, Frank's next door neighbor, Russell Budd, who was always in touch with him. You know, Russell taught at Middletown. So uh, long story short, uh, a phone call happens. And the record has actually reached out to try to get Bill Rogers to come. And um, they reached out to Frank first, but they didn't get a commitment yet. They reached out to Bill also as a backup plan because they wanted elite runners to come to this area, especially those guys at the time. And then uh, Frank comes back and says yes. And when he says yes, and they, John Chef goes to him, he says, oh, and by the way, we invited Bill Rogers to come. He says, gee. <laughs> Now we know about their legendary careers of racing each other. They're both Olympians. Uh, they were the two key guys that started the Falmouth Road Race with their famous duel and, and all the, the cool characters behind that whole operation. And so it just goes on and on. So uh, even that first year when the marathon uh, went uh, to um, Five Boroughs in 1975, um, um, or 1976 fall, Frank had just won. Uh, or finished second in the Olympic marathon up in uh, Montreal. And they knew after the first five-borough marathon, they were going to need elite athletes as hooks. So they hadn't quite worked that piece out yet. It was still very grassroots in New York City. And I was around the Roadrunners Club constantly. I was in and out of the city all the time with these people, uh, spending a lot of nights down there. The um, So uh, they invited both Frank and Bill to run kind of a similar scenario. And uh, in the end, uh, they sort of set the marquee as to what they were going to wind up getting paid in future races. So Bill took 3000 Frank took four into the table. After that, Bill, they jacked it up to five, both of them. And they had like this unwritten thing. And they were going to races all over, occasionally racing each other, like big seven mile and all these great runs. And, uh, and Frank and Bill, Frank and Bill. So then by the time we get going, which is summer 81, the runner magazine, which is recently formed by George Hurst, who has just left uh, The New Yorker, which he uh, was publisher of. And um, uh, Runner's World magazine was a major competitor. So Runner's started with through uh, um, um, the resources that George Hirsch had. And I got to meet George that same fall of 81 at a Runner's Rally weekend because I was living at Mohonk and putting on events up there, uh, doing a lot, a lot of running up there. And um, so... Uh, the mid-July race happens. We have Runner's Rally weekend in August. I meet George Hirsch, and I meet uh, Dr. Um, uh, uh, everybody knows him. He wrote a lot for years. Always had a, yeah, always had a different girlfriend with him. And um, <laughs> so they're staying at the hotel. He's with, you know, of course. And I showed George Hirsch how to stretch uh, from sitting in a chair. And he started copying me because I was always stretching, you know, working at constant kinks. And um, and we uh, became good friends over the years. So uh, anyway, 80, 81 happens. It's landmark. They have a 10-page story, uh, which is on the classic website. I had it downloaded years ago to so people could read it. And uh, it was just the most classic story. And that's how the whole thing got uh, kicked off the ground. The following year, um, John Chef kind of took it on himself. He didn't need me anymore. I was a, a one-and-done paid servant of the record to be first-year race director. And I became a race director, as you know, with Wayne George and Bob back again in 2006. But for 24 years more, the record owned it and uh, kept it in-house and had varying race directors over the years. 
uh, even after John Sheff was fired as the uh, publisher uh, in uh, 1990 because they started to lose money. Uh, and they gave him a choice. You've got to get rid of all these heavily paid staffers or you're gone. So he said, well, I'm staying. He said, he said, you can make a choice. And he said, well, then you're fired. That was out of way. So they fired John. And soon after the staff members left, many of these guys, he had worked under them as he worked his way up. So, you know, there's the record and the, and the race are obviously parallel together through my entire life. What I was doing during the whole thing was figuring out still my life path. So uh, in the end of uh, the first run across a, uh, or the first Orange Classic, um, the um, Bruce Birnbaum, who had founded the Orange Runners Club only uh, a year before, uh, says, what are you doing for the rest of your life? I go, I don't know what I'm doing in five minutes. He goes, uh, let's open a store in Middletown. So we uh, we opened a store in Middletown across from Walmart up here. It used to be the old mall. And it was it's now a glass-enclosed building called the Capelli Building. And Lou Capelli is a friend of Bruce's. Bruce said, I got $11 million in the bank. He says, let's, you know, let's go for it. I said, I got 20000 in cash. I says, but I says, I don't have any equity. I don't own a house. So here's my 20000 because I, I just believe, you know, I, I just totally believed in it. And uh, Bruce took out a $90,000 equity, equity loan. So anyway, I go to Boston in the spring of 82, and Dave McGilvery's got all his future plans spread out on the table in his house. George Shorter and I, I brought George with me. We're staying with him for the weekend. And um, the um, he's starting uh, Dave McGilvery Sports uh, Enterprises. He's starting uh, the New England Triathlon Association. He was starting a lot of things up that very weekend that we were talking. He also had started a running store in Medford. He calls it MEFA. Uh, and uh, he started putting races on with Bill Rogers and Joe Benoit and other world-class athletes from his store in downtown Medford Square. So he found that he was better at putting on races and working with all these athletes than he was putting on a store. So he got rid of the store, dumped his partner, and went on to just li- making a living off of running. And uh, DMSE is huge. He goes all over, as you know. So um, the uh, well, 82, I come back from the Boston Marathon, being with Dave, attending the New Balance post-race marathon party. Oh, my God. I go on the dance floor, and, uh, and Dave introduces me to this guy named Rockin' Rod Dixon. I go, <laughs> wow, this guy's he's like Hollywood, man. And he says, he goes, Frank, he says, that's my wife, who we later divorced but they had beautiful children with. But uh, he says, you dance with her and I will get you all the runners you want for your Orange Classic. <laughs> we got Dick Beardsley, who had just lost Alberto at the finish line. We got, I can't begin, Pete Fitzinger would go on to win the 84 Olympic trials. We got all these runners. The best year of the Classic was 82 because of that post-race party in Boston because of Dave McGilvern. So, and, uh, and Rod was a huge celeb man he had he was dominant on the roads was expected to win over frank frank the whole time was watching him because he was commentating for nbc back then and nbc seemed to be covering road races more than others so um the uh uh, i remember the race goes off the night before i got rod drunk at his ass at the uh now it's a senior center down the street from downtown and um that was a hotel back then so uh, he had a, one of the you know, two, two masters runners, one in each knee, women, uh, well-known r- local runners, Mary Howell and Renata Van Buren. And uh, so he's feeling a little lit the next day, but he's still Rod Dixon. I don't care how, what he drank. He likes to drink. So did, so did Frank. He was always having a beer. Still always has beer. So 
The um, uh, result is the gun goes off and Frank attacks the course right off the bat goes into the lead. He is pushing so hard. It's that it's that marathon legend that made, you know, how I knew I was going to win in 1972 because I knew when I hit Vandenberg Circle, whatever that you know place was, that eight mile point, that nobody in the world would be able to stay with me to the finish. And he did. That's what he that's how he won. So he had it mapped out the entire course. He had run it in segments before his Munich victory that changed everything for road racing and um, the marathon because it was live on television for the first time. And uh, so same kind of scenario in, in Middletown. He attacked the course. This is a hilly, tough course in this town. So Rod, the whole time, is running to catch up with him. you got George Buckeye. you got legends all over the place. All these top-notch runners are, are stringing out and chasing, you know. So And Frank is just attacking the course. And, you know, when you come down that steep hill from uh, Highland Avenue and down into uh, to cross over North Street, that, that you got to there's no there's no time to really recoup on the Orange Classic course. It's a constant battle, of course. And I know how many beers I had the night before I designed it with Bobby Bright. So that was another story. Um, but we're just laughing the whole time we're designing this route through all the neighborhoods in town. Uh, it was so innocent and so much fun. I can't begin to tell you. I'm, I cherish it till the day I die. So the um, Frank wins. Rod's coming down towards, headed towards Elsie the Cow, probably a good 150 yards back from Frank, who had won the race. And then you see the, uh, you know, the with Dixon way in the background, Frank coming across. NBC, Brent Musburger. We got 45 seconds, and Frank Shorter in his hometown wins the Orange Cup on national television. I'm with Dave McGilvery and a bunch of his cohorts. Randy Thomas were sitting in my apartment in Cambridge Manor. And watching this on television later that day and just blown away, you know, it was such such a great moment. But I mean, all, all this stuff set the, set the thing up for years to come because people in the local area started coming to me. And you know this as a race director. Hey, we want to benefit our charity. We want to put a race on in our town. And I, you know, run like the wind, uh, the monster up in Monticello and countless other races. I got my fingers in for the next probably 10 years um, and uh, just became a friend to a lot of people. The whole running store thing happened because I had a partner early on, a couple partners. We didn't know what we were doing in New Paltz. And then in uh, Middletown, I had Bruce, but his wife sued him divorce. So when I came back from that 82 marathon, I was going to segue. Uh, Bruce's wife sued him for divorce, and he closed the business because he wasn't going to give her anything. And he left town, went to New Bern, North Carolina, and uh, lives there to this day. And uh, never paid a dollar with uh, child support or alimony or anything so he left his his uh soon to be ex-wife high and dry and uh and i was left without a place to work so i went back to valley central for one year i taught a uh, uh i was a full-time sub at the uh middle school for a teacher on sabbatical and they never hired a replacement they just kept me there every day and then were i put on running? huh were you still running at that point oh yeah yeah i was still running i ran uh competitively right up till about 90. I would say. Okay. And then I started to really take, you know, I was running recreationally ever since. So I'm not, I'm not George Scherter or you who are destined to be career high level runners right through every age group you ever touch. Uh, I've always just been a huge fan, kept close to it uh, in my own way uh, through mainly one person at a time through customers. And I will be that way. You know why I do what I do every day, Aaron, is the outcome. What I have found is my niche in the community 
with a, a great outcome. I see pain relief. I see performance enhancement. So our little model here is really, really working well. And, you know, it's hard to walk away from that, even at my age. Uh, but like I said, when I do make that moment, uh, my coworker is so dedicated, I'll just give it to them. Yeah. Sorry. Beautiful. Yeah. So the, um, yeah, so to, to me, business has never been about money, profit, you know, making a buck off of this guy or that guy. It's been about uh, the person that you're dealing with, caring about each other. And when you, I think when you genuinely come across and people see that, they're going to continue to want to come back to you or say good things about you. So I think that that's what it's all about. Don't shortchange the customer experience. If they want a short experience, that's okay. It's fine too. But most really don't. They really want to have, sit down and have a serious talk about what they're they're investing in. So the uh, so Bruce. So what I did was in that year I was subbing uh, Al Weiner of Weiner T-shirts. Um, sponsored a race I put on called the Old Mine Road 100K. So I sponsored the first ultra run around here from uh, going up Route 23 towards uh, Woodstock, down to the traffic circle near Kingston, and then down 209 to the finish at Scully's Tavern in Port Jervis, 62-mile race. So relatively, in a classic old route known as the Old Mine Road, uh, 100K. So I made all the plans. Got all these, so Jerry Beam and all these local runners who had never run a marathon, plus marathon or more, showed up. And some stars were born that day. Guys who didn't realize they could push to 50 miles. 55. It was unbelievable. Just opened up a powder keg of people who just really. That was 1982, 81 to 82. No, it was 82 to 83. The race was held in the fall of 82. Old Mine Road went okay. So Al Weiner came along after that. And he says, well, let's open up a running store in downtown Middletown. Now, what I had going on was this. I had no money left. Uh, Bruce Birnbaum was pissed that I got, opened up a store again because he felt looking on the, up the rear for 90000 So long story short, uh, <clears throat> um, Albert uses his credit to back up my context. So I had these amazing relationships with Brooks, Falcony, and Asics. So all three sales reps I had become very close with through blisters and through new pulse. And um, they said, this guy can sell a pair of shoes, give him what he wants. I didn't have anything, Aaron, but a reputation, which to me was, was even more valuable. And a relationship with the rep was more valuable than anything because the reps go to bat for you when they believe in you, uh, even if there's credit mistakes in your life. So. Um, Long story short, uh, I started with three lines of shoes. Then a couple of cops had a store uh, briefly in the old uh, uh, shopping center uh, food place in Goshen. And uh, they um, were getting bootleg stuff and seconds and closeouts from stores going out of business all over New York City. They were both New York City cops. So their two smoking wives uh, were supervising the inventory. And people would just show up in this empty box with all this stock laying around and find something they liked. Now, in there were like GT2s selling for 130 bucks, old classic models that were actually very good. So they went out of business because, you know, they weren't exactly promoting a great atmosphere. Uh, the stock that was left over wound up in a liquidator's place in Middletown here. And then uh, Albert got wind that they had 3,500 pairs of shoes and the guy would sell them for $2 a piece. Wow. Looked at his credit card, buys. 3,500 pairs of shoes for $7,000. Wow. 
<laughs> and all of a sudden we got tables of, and I seeded out all the good stock and sold it for full price. Yeah. I got the money back instantaneously. Yeah. The other thing I did was uh, in downtown Middletown and North Street, I staged, as soon as we opened up the, the store, which was a cubby in Weinert's, I, um, I had two other hooks. One was not only the closeouts, the reputations with the reps, some of the runners were coming in locally, um, but I put on a marathon, half marathon, and a 5K all at the same time. So we had a two-loop half marathon course, 5K in town and then out and back on uh, South Plank. Um, and the marathoners did it twice. So we had 100 marathoners. We had uh, about uh, 500 half marathon finishers and 500 5K runners. Every one of Marin came into my store to register. <laughs> That helps. <laughs> yeah, that's how we started. So I ran the marathon for two years called the Veterans Marathon. And uh, we got the DAV to support it and benefit them. And then uh, the life, like I said, it's just one journey step after another. Uh, the thing with Weinert lasted to 91. Then because he, what people realize with me is that I was always the business, Aaron. And they were just trying to make a buck on the side. So uh, Weiner just gave it to me. He said, here, just, you know, you got $30,000 in debt. You better pay that off. That was a line of credit. <laughs> so I, as soon as I got rid of him, uh, I went through four years of struggle because, you know, things were continuing to be competitive. Also, I had taken on during those years in downtown, I took on Nike. Nike um, just gave me the whole line, basketball, cleated. I mean, you name it. I had the whole line as it was evolving. I was also doing a good job with team sales. I was going to all the schools selling wrestling shoes from ASICs. Uh, I was selling uh, basketball team shoes. But the problem, Aaron, was I wasn't making a profit. The whole thing came down to the dollar. So in the end, uh, I'm almost ready to go out of business. It's 94, 95. I'm in the midst of a divorce with two little girls that are five and nine because um, it just ran its course first time out. Uh, we didn't belong together, but we were ready for marriage when we married. It was We married on the dream. A uh, nice lady. We still have a great relationship with her. She's remarried. Our kids are doing great. I got four grandchildren and everybody's doing good. Girls, My girls run every day, so that, you know, that makes me proud. Pushing the babies, no less. Twin boys that are 10 months. So the... Uh, so the... Uh, The uh, whole thing with those years with Nike, uh, they would double ship me at times. Uh, I was always paying the Nike bill. I couldn't afford to pay the guys who were really driving my business, my dedicated community of Asics Brooks and other people. And there were other lines that came in. I made lots of mistakes ordering too much, uh, never able to pay the bill, listening to sales reps, tell me what to book. Uh, I think the biggest thief out there is the Brooks rep because they're always trying to hose you for to get that 12% discount. And I learned a long time ago, you know, don't let anybody tell you how to run your business. You run your business. So I learned how to, how to make it go and how to order. That took a, a many, many years to learn how to order. Uh, but the gift came from Superfeed. I'll tell you why. Because uh, this this guy comes into my shop in 95, May 1st. He's got a pair of Superfeed green in his shoes. He's got to try this little insert out. He says, and at that point, I'd had 11 medical orthotics made by podiatrists from all over the area, city included. Uh, cork and leather, uh, you know, the best. And uh, I just wanted to run. There's a lot of the reasons I slowed down with running because it was because of injury. So I was doing everything I could to get the shoe and thing right. Because, you know, it's one thing to shuffle all day at 11 to 14 minute mile pace with a run walk. 
Aaron, it's another thing to run at six minute mile training, run six thirty seven minutes, or to race uh, at higher levels. You know, and, and that that's where the problem came in. It was running hard; it became an issue. So, and I do have a limb length discrepancy and some issues. So I was able to overcome with the long running, but not with the fast running. So the, uh, the thing with uh, Nike, uh, I finally told him in 93, uh, and the salesman just hyping up the line. We got these new Air Jordans. We're putting in millions of dollars of advertising. You don't do this. You're going you're gonna to die. You're going to miss out. Every time I did an 18 pair, booking water on a pair of Air Jordans. I ate them because the big guy got the business first. I was the last one they came to. And then the type of kid who came in, even back in the 90s, wanted to steal them. They didn't want to pay for them. So in Fessy and downtown, it was more than one occasion when I chased somebody out the door and hunted them down. I could have got shot, but I, I didn't know any better So because I'm a stupid runner. So so the, uh, so the, um, uh, we're rolling into Superfeet showing up May 1st of 95. I go for a four-mile run while I let a total stranger from an ashram up in Sullivan County who I'd never met. Guy just moved here from California. And I said, we'll just babysit the store. I'm going to go out for a little run. I come back. My acute Achilles problem, bilateral, gone on one run. I says, I got to call this company. I call the company up. Turns out the, the rep lives in, in New Paltz. He comes right down, sets up his high chair to do the custom fit. And uh, he says, you're ready for this, dude. I mean, where your head is at, custom is going to take you to new levels. So right off the bat, I start naming my own price. I start making a legitimate profit, a good profit, off of an ups upscale fitting. And they're starting to come in every day. Now I'm selling $500 orthotics, $130 custom super feet, which I make um, $110 profit on, the custom black uh, or the carbon. And then I do a fifty dollar over the fifty to sixty over the counter stuff, and I give people a choice as I educate them, uh, starting with a cupping, holding their heel, standing on shapes, and letting them get the thing. Then I pitch and post the rear foot, the forefoot of the whole time. I'm even evaluating what shoe they should wear, versus the treadmill analysis. Treadmill analysis never worked for me because I didn't feel it, but the hands-on with the high chair, I do feel very much. And when I get the customer to the point where they're saying. Yeah, I do feel better when I had that super feed in there and I took it out. I really missed it. And then they say, you know, I'm tired of, I can't do this. Anymore. I got to get the best every day. There, look. Three casts, you see them? Yep, the molds. Dude, I'm there. I'm like, <laughs> I'm like, I'm like, pinch me. I'm going to, I'm going to die. Yeah, he just showed me. He's got a, he's got a bunch lined up to, to complete. Because uh, obviously the listeners don't know what you just showed, but no, it's fantastic. That's fantastic. We well, the listeners I mean, should, should hear the truth. I said when they hear the truth about um, what lay ahead, the truth is very, very good news. You know, I, I think that uh, running is going to hit levels it's never hit ever before. Uh, once we break through the COVID uh, and society starts to feel comfortable with how we're all managing this. Um, I think uh, having a vaccine is going to really be a big, big plus that's going to help build confidence. I realize there's a lot of divisiveness out there. I hope you all get over it and, uh, and, and do the right thing for yourself. That's what matters most. And that is continue to run, stay healthy, you know, and, and, uh, and, and love those around you. That's what matters the most. Absolutely. You know, uh, 
Frank and I have, have shared a long journey together. Um, yeah, I, I was. I uh, forgot I that I was live, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. That's uh, no, you're not live. Uh, it's okay. Oh, good. Uh, that guy. Uh, so, um, we, uh, you know, as I said, my journey started in 1990, and that's when Frank got out into the schools. That's where I met Frank. Uh, was he came out to the school and and had you know running shoes and um, and you know fit us for for running shoes, and that's where I got to know um, you know what a run shop was and and supporting local, um, you know, and in, in my experience with with owning my own run shop that uh, came from my aspirations of of having what Frank had and, and doing what Frank did and supporting my community. So you know, as Frank's saying, and, and as I'm saying to all of you, if you can support your local shops, you know, please do, because, you know, it's the moms and pops that are trying to make a difference in your local communities. Uh, you know, I've, I've talked about it in the past on the podcast, but, you know, I'll just reiterate it. If you have a local shop and you can give them the business first, please do, uh, you know, they do a whole lot more. As Frank was just talking about all the races that he helped coordinate and, and you know, have his hand in to get put on. Um, yeah, I started running the, the Orange Classic back in the day. Uh, this year was supposed to be the the 40th anniversary. Um, you know, yeah. I was, was going to go up to run, but you know, God bless COVID. Um, <laughs> COVID had other plans for us. Uh, yeah, I, I really do hope to get back up there next year and and race it. Um, and uh, it, I mean, if you have a chance, the Orange Classic is. I mean, it it's what turned my eyes to, to road running. Um, you know, when I, when I was doing it, um, you know, Frank kind of talked about some of the runners that there, we, we had Kenyans that would come because there was, there was cash prizes and it was just, it was so deep and so competitive and so fun. The, you know, the atmosphere, um, it it just was, you know, it was, it was my first experience at what a real, you know, a, a larger road race was. And, um, you know, they're going back to the original course, you know, it's so, uh, the start and finish used to be at the, the fairgrounds. And I, I heard you said, you're going to move it back there. I mean, just the, you know, the whole environment of that race, I'm so glad it's still there. And it was a huge part of my, my running history and, and, you know, what got me really into, to racing, uh, you know, towing the line, Frank Shorter was there a number of times and, you know, for, for Frank to, to turn his head and, you know, and, and uh, just recognize a, a little local boy. I mean that you can't, you know, that's to have that. It's just, it's incredible to line up with the, you know, people like that. So, uh, but you know, Frank, uh, I didn't stop smiling <laughs> this whole time. It's been an absolute honor and privilege, uh, you know, to, to be able to, to go through this. I, I don't know why you haven't been on more podcasts and people don't recognize your accomplishment, but I, I once again, just want to just take the moment to, to recognize what you did and what you've done for not only, uh, you know, the, the history of running, but for all runners and for our sport, I really do. I thank you. Uh, you're an amazing, you're an amazing man. You've done amazing things and you, you've really, you've made a huge difference in my life. So thank you. Well, I look up to you now, Aaron. Thank you. <laughs> I certainly appreciate it, my friend. I can't wait to see you when this is all said and done. Uh, I'll be back up to say hi and, and visit the shop. And, and again, I'll, I'll be back for the classic. So um, anything else we should talk about before you head out? I think we're good. I'm getting hungry. <laughs> Absolutely. I will let you right. go, my friend. Thank right. you so much. We'll yep. talk again soon. All you right, bet. buddy. Thanks. I want to thank Frank Giannino just one more time for coming on to the podcast. Um, I really think that... Uh, Frank is one of those people that has not received much publicity for uh, the feat that he accomplished. And I'm really happy to, to share his story 
Um, his book is called 46 Days. It's by Kevin Gleason. I'll put that in the show notes. Uh, it goes more in-depth into Frank's life and to each of his uh, attempts, uh, more so the 1980 crossing of the United States. Uh, but super, super great book. Great, quick read. It's not long, uh, but you know, makes more note of Frank's life that you know, we couldn't do in an hour or so time. So, um, and uh, this, uh, this in closing, I have my my kids here with me. Um, say hello, guys. Hi. <laughs> um, since we started off the podcast with um, you know a, a personal note, I wanted to to kind of end on some some thoughts that we have. Um, we'll first start. Um, you guys got to, to meet Frank. Do you remember meeting him up in New York? Um, I do remember meeting him up in New York at the running shop. <laughs> um, it's hard to to meet um, athletes that we often uh, admire or, or do big things. Uh, you know, for instance, we uh, we were up in uh, or we were over in France and we got to meet some really cool athletes. Um, did you guys know what Frank had done? Did I told you guys the story? Yes, sir. Uh, no. <laughs> I don't remember. You don't remember? So, um, just to recap, Frank had uh, run across the United States twice, and the second time he set the record for running across the United States. Um, what did you think about it, Kay, since you don't remember Amber? I thought it was really cool that like he like ran so long, like just with pure grit, like determination. Like, some people, like, have that skill, but they don't have, like, the level of grit he has. That was just amazing. So I thought. Yeah. I remember now. (laughs) (laughs) You were shy, so what did you think? Were you nervous to meet him, or were you just being shy? Um, what? Do you remember how you felt when we met him? No. (laughs) You don't remember. That's okay. That was a, it was a few years ago. Um, so, um. Was he the guy at the um, shop? Um, the running store. He owned the running store in Middletown, where I grew up. I remember going to a running shop. I don't know if it was his. It was probably yeah. In New York. Yeah. yeah. It was right after probably, we did yeah. the. Uh, it was right after we did the um, Hellgate when Daddy got the frostbite. We went up to New York right after that around Christmas time. Anyhow, hmm. um, so. Um, yeah, Frank is a, he was a, a big um, role model for me. Who are some people that you guys look up to? It could be anybody. It could be teachers. It can be um, athletes. You're definitely one of them. <laughs> Thank you. Um, <laughs> Who else would you say are, are people you guys look up to? Um, I like watching. I like looking up to Andrew Miller because like he's so young and so good. Andrew Miller, the runner. Yep. Yep. What about other other people? It can be in the community. It can be uh, other sports. It can be um, relatives or people you know. Who are some people that you look up to? It could be a teacher. Mm, uh, I look up to lots of singers. Look up to lots of singers? Okay. Mm-hmm. Like who? Um, Who's one of your favorites? George Ezra. George Ezra? Yeah. Cool. I look up to Stephen Curry and Clay Thompson as well. That's awesome. We both got injured last season, which is pretty sad. Yeah, I know. Um, what about historically? Who are some people that you think would have been really cool to have met? You know, people that could have already passed away. But who are some people that you would have looked up to? Presidents. Like who? Which ones? Um, which ones would you have wanted met? 
Abe Lincoln for sure. Yeah, why is that? Because he was known as the best president like of all time. What did he do? What did like he, he, uh, he um like banned slavery. Right. As one and I, like he was just so helpful to like everything. And to everyone. Right? And everyone and he was very honest. That's therefore the name Honest Abe. Yeah. You did a report. This he also. Past year. I'm sorry, Keegan, you weren't He also came from, like, a humble beginning right. and, like, grew up to, like, something humongous, which is pretty awesome. Mm-hmm. That is pretty awesome. Yep. Who did you do a report on this year? Sacagawea. And why did you choose Sacagawea? Um, because I loved how she traveled around, like, everywhere, left her family, and just went on trips with all boys. And, and people of, of different races, right? Sacagawea was, what, what, uh, what was she? She was a, a Native American, right? Yeah. She was a Native American, and she went with two... Um, People who captured her. And they were, they were white guys, right? Yeah. Yeah, so I mean, it, that must have been intimidating, but she still helped them. Yeah. That's pretty amazing. That's and pretty she great. even saved um, boats when they tipped over. Yeah. I don't know why. <laughs> well, because there were supplies were in yeah. people could have got hurt. She was caring about other people. That's pretty awesome. You remember the explorers' names who she guided? Lewis and Clark? Yep. Yeah. So, um, I mean, that's, that's kind of what I wanted to talk about was, um, you know, other people in society that have done things for, for other people. So, I mean, why do you think they do those things? Why do you think they... Um, out of the kindness of their heart, like, they were raised that way. Right. Like, I did a project like Ambrin, um, the exact same project in third grade, um, but I did it on Nelson Mandela, mm-hmm. the Nobel Peace Prize winner yep. who fought for civil rights. In where? Um, in Washington. No. Wait, wh- where did he fight? I forgot. It was Nelson third grade. Mandela? Yeah. He was from South Africa. No, he wasn't. <laughs> yes, he was. Yes, he was. No, he was. Nelson Mandela was from South Africa. He fought apartheid. Apartheid? Yeah. That was a long time ago. <laughs> but yes, he fought for basically like civil rights. Like Abraham yeah, I knew, I knew he fought for civil rights, but I thought he was like part of the march because it was so long ago. Uh, well, who was it here that fought for civil rights? Um, Martin Luther King. Martin Luther King, right. Yes, so again, why do you think these people fought for that? Why would Abraham Lincoln fight for the rights of an entire race that he's not even a part of. Why would he do that? Because um, he believed everyone was equal, and right. they deserve the same treatment. That's right. Yep. And that's the way we should feel, right? Mm-hmm. Everyone's equal. Yes, we sir. Should, we should love everybody, no matter what color, what religion, right? Wait, why do people judge people by brown skin? They're just the same people, but with brown skin. Right. That's exactly right. They're not different. No. No, it's just a pigment in our skin mm-hmm. that makes us different. Or, you know, something with our hair. Like, ours is red. You know, I mean, how would we feel if people hated us because we just had red hair? That would be awful, right? Yeah. Yes, sir. Yeah, so it's, it's seeing everyone as equals, right? And that's what all of these people did, was try to see everybody as equals, mm-hmm. which is great. And that's what we should do. Uh, and we would be much better in society because we'd work together, right? 
to do yeah. things together. Right? Mm-hmm. Yes, sir. So when we, I talked about this when in my, my Facebook um, post, I said when I go to a race, I don't see, I don't see gender. You know, I don't see males and females. I don't see color, right? I don't see whites, blacks. I don't see Hispanics. You know, I, I just see runners. That's, a, that's what I see. And if somebody gets hurt, right, somebody's down, just like for me, if I was hurt, I'd want somebody to help me, right? Yeah. So I, I don't worry about if I'm, you know, in the middle of the race, if somebody gets hurt, I got to make sure if there's something I can do that I can help. So if it's the best thing for me to do is to go to the next aid station and tell them somebody's down, that they need help, then that's, that's what I do. If I need to stay with them, that's what I do, right? So same thing with you guys. If one of your friends is hurt, right, you see what you can do to help. Right? Yes, sir. Yeah. Absolutely. So what do you guys think? What is, what is love to you guys? How would you define love? And it doesn't have to be like the love like, you know. Of, like romance. Yeah, right. It doesn't have to be romance. It can be what do you think love is? How should we love others? Like love them as like equals, as like you're a friend, right. like everyone. Everyone, right? We should treat everybody the same, right? Yeah. And and just be willing to help to whatever level we can, right? Mm-hmm. Yes, yeah, sir. That includes when Daddy needs help. <laughs> <laughs> With what? <laughs> well, I have a bunch of things we have to do outside. <laughs> so we can start there. Goodbye. <laughs> so, um, to wrap up, um, we haven't really been able to to do any races. Amber was talking about like when would we be able to talk about races and stuff again. We haven't really been able to do races, but there's virtual races right now, right? So yeah. these are things that we could do um, as a family, right? Yeah. And there's also Strava, stealing everybody's segments. <laughs> Keegan just uh-huh. learned about Strava and has yeah, signed up for Strava. So um, <laughs> none of holding the, uh, sa- none uh, of my friends' segments are safe. <laughs> as uh, as I said earlier, I tried to to run um, today. This is after I wrote that Facebook post after I was injured, and my calf is still bugging me and my hip's still bugging me. So I still need to take some time off. But do you think we should look for a race that we could do, a virtual race that we could do as a family? That'd be fun. I like that. Yeah, I like I, that. I, we, can, we can talk about the the training as we go and how things are going. I like doing the Strava challenges, like bike three hundred minutes and like um, run three hundred minutes. Those yeah. are all fun ones because yeah. I went to the Riveter and I did like I got six hours in of just <laughs> the pure is riding. A, a bike park here in, in Asheville. Um, I didn't so. count it though. <laughs> Well, well, I think that's a good idea for us. I think what we can do is we can, you know, do some episodes of how things are going training-wise. We'll, we'll pick a goal, right? We'll pick a race that we want to do. Yeah. And then we can talk about what race we picked and then how we're going we're gonna to train for it. And then we can talk about how training is going. And then we can talk about the actual, you know, event when we do it. How's that? Does that mean we get to be on more podcasts? <laughs> that means you get to be on more podcasts. I'll do it. <laughs> Somebody likes being on the podcast. I sure do. <laughs> well, I love you guys, and I, I thank you guys for coming on today. Is there anything else we should close with? Um, Let's go on a run so we can go in the river. Another, you want to talk about another ultra? Uh, we on another episode? Yeah. Yeah, we can we can pick a an ultra and talk about it. Which yeah. one do you want to talk about? Um, you can think about it if you want. 
I want to talk about one of the Georgia death races. <laughs> okay. I love those. <laughs> we can talk about the Georgia death race. All right. Well, everybody, that's, uh, we're going to sign off. So you guys, let's say goodbye. Bye, guys. Let's go in the river. <laughs> love to all. Thank you for your time. Thank you for your ears. Thank you for your support. And uh, check out the show notes on how you can uh, touch base with me. Um, if you're looking for coaching, if you need help with anything, don't hesitate to reach out. Uh, and uh, once again, thank you for your time. Um, we've got some new videos up on YouTube, so check those out. And uh, until next time, my friends, take care. <laughs>